0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of Surveillance Report, because today we are bringing you an interview with an expert about DNS, who's going to talk all about DNS, what it is, what it means for you, and why you should care about it. So without further ado, I'm going to jump in and we're going to welcome Mr. John Todd to Surveillance Report. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. Let's go ahead and start with a real simple question. Could you please quickly, uh, briefly introduce yourself and Quad9 and what it is you guys do? Sure. Sure. So again, I'm John Todd. I'm the general manager of Quad9. The brief background
1: on what Quad9 is and what we do. We've been around now for about five years. We were founded uh, some time ago by an initiative started by three different organizations. One is uh, a nonprofit called Global Cyber Alliance. They were uh, chartered with some work to bring security to as many people as they could for as low a price as possible. The second was Packet Clearinghouse, who worked with GCA to build essentially what was decided upon at that point to be a recursive DNS solution with an embedded security list. So that those are both nonprofits. Uh, PCH is based in the Bay Area, has been around for about 25 or 30 years now. The last participant who came in as a founding member was IBM. After the two initial participants, GCA and PCH, got together and decided that you know this this a recursive resolver would be a really good great, great idea with a security component of it, a block list, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a little bit. The privacy aspect became quickly evident that we needed to create a separate entity, a separate organization that was neither of those two to become the holder of this service and to employ the staff and get donations, etc. So at about that time that it was decided to create a separate entity, which later became Quad9, we approached IBM, who was the owner of a large address internet, internet address space, a, a 9 slash 8. So they own 1,256th of the IPv4 space. It was actually not announced. And we approached them and said, well, you have 9.9.9.0 slash 24. We'd really love to use that. And it was great timing. IBM had some people in, in it that were interested in doing something with DNS as a basically as a contribution or as a, as a sponsorship for something and it was perfect timing so they became the third member the third founding member of what became quad 9. so we launched in november of 2017 we actually had about a year of beta Where we got about a million users on the platform mostly in north america built up the system and then launched publicly in 2017 and the platform is again it's a dns recursive resolver so it maps names to numbers in the most simplistic way but we have a list of many millions of different domains that are trying to do malicious things it's phishing it's spyware it's botnets malware So we keep a list of that. And
0: then if your computer is using our system, tries to look up one of those names, we will. Hello everyone. And welcome to a very special edition of Surveillance Report because today we are bringing you an interview with an expert about DNS who's going to talk all about DNS, what it is, what it means for you and why you should care about it. So without further ado, I'm going to jump in and we're going to welcome Mr. John Todd to Surveillance Report. Hi. Thanks for having me. Of course. Let's go ahead and start with a real simple question. Could you please quickly, uh, briefly introduce yourself and Quad9 and what it is you guys do? Sure, so again, I'm John Todd. I'm the general manager of Quad9. The brief background
1: on what Quad9 is and what we do. We've been around now for about five years. We were founded uh, some time ago by an initiative started by three different organizations. One is uh, a nonprofit called Global Cyber Alliance. They were uh, chartered with some work to bring security to as many people as they could for as low a price as possible. The second was Packet Clearinghouse, who worked with GCA to build essentially what was decided upon at that point to be a recursive DNS solution with an embedded security list. So those are both nonprofits. Uh, PCH is based in the Bay Area, has been around for about 25 or 30 years now. The last participant who came in as a founding member was IBM. After the two initial participants, GCA and PCH, got together and decided that you know this this a recursive resolver would be a really good great, great idea with uh, a security component of it, a block list, and we'll talk about that I'm sure in a little bit the privacy aspect became quickly evident that we needed to create a separate entity, a separate organization that was neither of those two to become the holder of this service and to employ the staff and get donations, et cetera. So at about that time that it was decided to create a separate entity, which later became Quad9, we approached IBM, who was the owner of a large address, internet, uh, internet address space, uh, a 9 slash 8. So they own two hundred and fifty sixth of the IPv4 space. It was actually not announced. And we approached them and said, well, you have 9.9.9.0 slash 24. We'd really love to use that. And it was great timing. IBM had some people in, in it that were interested in doing something with DNS as a, basically as a contribution or as a, as a sponsorship for something. And it was perfect timing. So they became the third member, or the third founding member of what became Quad9. So we launched in November of 2017, we actually had about a year of beta where we got about a million users on the platform, mostly in North America, built up the system and then launched publicly in 2017. And the platform is, again, it's a DNS recursive resolver. So it maps names to numbers in the most simplistic way, but we have a list of many millions of different domains that are trying to do malicious things. It's phishing, it's spyware, it's botnets, malware. So we keep a list of that. And then if your computer is using our system, tries to look up one of those names, We will deny that lookup for the malicious domains, whereas we will let all the other queries that your computer does in the normal course of business during during the day we'll let those go through and resolve the goals are really security through that block list and privacy meaning that we're not selling or doing anything with the personal data that you've given us because of course that list of websites you're going to or your devices are accessing is extremely sensitive so we discard all of the ip address data about our end users we don't sell it repackage it we're not a marketing company we're not a you know we're not a cdn we don't have some other product in our back pocket that we're trying to benefit from all we do is protective dns so again our nonprofit status kind of lets us do that without having an ulterior motive so 2017 we launched we've been growing very very steadily since then in our the first years or so we were growing at about five to eight percent per week as far as volumes go, and that's since scaled back. We're, st- we're now still looking at between 2 and 3.5% per week of growth if we just look at the volume of queries coming through the system, which is a pretty staggering number for so long a period of time. We launched with about 100 cities, and we're now at 185, I think, uh, with a whole huge number that are actually in queue right now for deployment in the first quarter of this year. So we have about 90 countries in which Quad9 exists. So we have actually servers in around 90 countries. The goal is to get the servers as close to the end users as possible, to keep latency low and to also get around issues like you know network outages where there's you know segmentation that occurs between nations, as an example. If we have servers that are closer to end users, they don't experience those outages. Then the next kind of big news is that we were formed as a 501c3, a nonprofit in the United States, and it, beque- it became apparent to us over time that that's not good enough, especially for a lot of our European users, where the GDPR came into effect, and privacy as a legal concept is becoming more more important to people. Now, as a 501c3 in the United States, and because of our mission and charter, we promise not to use people's personal data, but there's nothing preventing us from using people's personal data from a legal perspective. We could just decide to change our our minds and start to use it because we are a U.S. corporation. Uh, even though it's a nonprofit, we're still a U.S. entity. So last year, in the beginning part of last year, we actually, prior much prior to that, we went through a very long process of uh, essentially rehoming the organization into Switzerland. And the reasons for that were varied, but the, one of the primary reasons is that Switzerland has extremely rigorous data protection laws. And they hold Quad9 accountable for the way we treat personal data. So while our mission didn't change, we didn't actually modify the way that the DNS queries are answered and nothing about the way the service operates changed. What happened was it became impossible for us to change our minds in the future. So basically putting our money where our mouth is and saying, all right, because we're in Switzerland now, You can believe us as far as what we're doing with your personal data. And there are actually in Switzerland, even differently than the rest of Europe, there are actually criminal penalties for that versus just civil penalties. So we did really put ourselves in the position where we are, where we're walking the walk uh, as far as how we're treating people's personal data. So that in a nutshell is kind of both a technical and political summary of Quad 9. Oh, I I forgot to mention the most important part, of course, is that it's free. We don't charge anything for the service. Anybody can use it, just change your DNS resolver to 9.9.9.9. Uh, And I always have to say also, if you're going to do that secondary resolver 149, 112, 112, 112, so that you've got some redundancy there. And then we have an IPv6, 2620 FE, FE. hopefully easily memorable addresses that people can put into their DNS resolver settings, either at their homes, businesses, wherever. There's no limitation on how we get used. We're happy to have more users on the system, uh, enjoying both the security and the privacy that we provide.
0: That was awesome. That was really in-depth. Thank you. And that did actually answer. I was thinking the other day I should ask you about why you guys moved to uh, Switzerland. So thank you for uh, getting ahead of that one. I do want to backtrack just a little bit. You kind of covered this a little bit in what you just said. But for our more non-technical listeners, how would you describe to them what a DNS resolver is or does? Sure. sure. So... um... I'm gonna try a new analogy today. Normally when people ask
1: what the DNS resolver is, we use the concept of a telephone book, but I'm gonna try a new one out and see how it works. Maybe you can tell me if it works or not, but I I wanna treat a DNS resolver as someone who's reading a map for you. So the internet is this map, and what happens is that when you have a name like www.example.com, and your computer wants to connect to it, your computer doesn't understand how to connect to names, it understands how to connect to numbers or IP addresses. And so what has to happen is your computer has to figure out where www.example.com, what's the IP address really that it needs to connect to, to start the transaction, to download the first bits of data in like a connection of any kind. So there's this map and the map is the DNS. And the the map will tell you, all right, if I have this name, how do I get to the address? And what Quad9 does is that we essentially read the map for you. You give us the name and we look at the map and we try to trace down all of the different and there's a very long process of going through what's called a recursive lookup all right who owns .com like who is the owner of .com all right now that we know who is owned by owned is a relative term right but who, who operates.com? operates .com then we have to find out who operates example.com and we go to them and ask them the next process and then once we find that out we ask the example.com name servers all right, what is the IP address for www.example.com? And finally, we give that answer back to you after we've done all this uh, fairly extensive processing. So we're essentially reading the map for you. The map is actually out there. The map is free. Anybody can set up a DNS resolver. So there's nothing magic about Quad9 as far as being able to do DNS lookups. However, what is different in the way we do it is that we look up that route for you on the map. And then if we discover, hey, where you're going, there's a big red flag on that destination where you're trying to go on the map. And if you connect to it, something bad might happen to you. So if that's the case, we don't answer the question. We actually say, well, we don't know. There's, we, the, the technical term is NX domain, domain not found. So that's how we prevent you from connecting or from your computers or your IoT devices or your mobile device. We prevent them from connecting to sites that we know are malicious in some way. But for 99.9% of all the queries we get, or that's actually more than that, we don't try to block you, we actually give you the
0: right answer and send you on your way and that all happens in just a few milliseconds. So how's my What's map that? analogy? Is
1: that is that reasonable?
0: I think so. And actually, I'd be interested to <laughs> okay. see how that goes over since, you know, phone books are kind of antiquated. Exactly. But like you said, exactly. it's it's kind of the go-to example. Actually, I was wondering if you've mentioned the word recursive a couple times. Would you be willing to explain what that is again for our less technical sure. listeners?
1: Sure. Yeah. So recursive means, I'm sorry that these are words that aren't typically used in non-English, but iterative descent through a tree. So if you want to view the DNS as a hierarchy all the way at the very top of the dns is dot it's called the root so in other words when you have a question about the dns you have to do this process whereby the recursive resolver quad 9 in this case has to actually really go all the way out and say all right what is the dns who like at the very bottom of the dns who owns the who runs the this namespace because the namespace is split up there are different owners of different sections so the root is 13 different organizations or actually 13 different servers really is a better way to put it that are spread out all over the world run by different organizations ranging from nasa to Netnode to there are a variety of organizations who generally agree this is a whole other podcast about like who runs the route and how do they agree on things but it's an extremely well run an extremely stable model where these 13 organizations all agree that this is the way the dns needs to look and so they contain all right, so who owns.com. So they'll actually say, well, who is, who is authorized to answer questions about .com? So Quad9, actually, when you give us a question about www.example.com, we go all the way out to the very top and we say, all right, who runs .com? And the root servers need to tell us that answer. We will accept whatever answer the root servers, and these are what are called authoritative servers. So that's the servers that contain the answers are authoritative the servers that ask the questions and do the running around for end users, those are recursive servers. Our job as a recursive server is to ask the authoritatives, all right, who owns this and where do I go to get the next question answered? So the roots tell us that .com is run by the following, you know, they'll, they'll give us a list back of a bunch of IP addresses and saying these IP addresses know the answers for .com. So next step is that we go and talk to those IP addresses and say, all right, you guys run .com, who owns or who is responsible for example.com and the.com name servers. One of them will give us the answer and say, Oh, these IP addresses over here know the answers for example.com. So again, we iteratively will go to those name servers and ask them. All right. So www.example.com. What's the IP address for that? Now, most websites that you're familiar with, they're usually only three or maybe at the most four levels deep. So you you know, .com, points to example example points to www the actual IP address but they can go deeper than that and in fact many large companies will have four or five layers where you get to example.com and then you get to marketing.example.com and then you get to germany.marketing.example.com and they keep pointing you to different name servers saying well i don't know the answer to this but i know who does and they'll you know go over there and ask so the recursive name server goes to each one of those recursively and gets the answers, and finally, at the very end of that process, gets the IP address. This works really well, and it's exceptionally stable and functional, and it's kind of the way the internet's been running for 30 years now with name service in place. More than 30 years. Cool. Okay, thank
0: you for that. Okay, I got another like entry-level question here. Again, for listeners who are new to the whole DNS concept, why would you say that DNS matters, and why should listeners care about changing their default DNS results?
1: Sure. Why DNS matters, and those are were very different questions. Why DNS matters is because as humans, we remember names, right? And almost everything we do focuses around names in some fashion, the metadata, the pointers of how we get to things. The internet has grown up with names, right? DNS names are what everyone remembers. So what started off as simply a convenience has become really a necessity. It's extremely rare that any kind of application has IP addresses somewhere built into it. They all refer to names. So names are critical in the operation of the internet. And so the the two halves of that equation, the, the people who run the authoritative servers, and all the politics around what names are allowed at what point in the tree, that's extremely difficult and very important to pay attention to on one side. But then on the recursive side, how are names allowed to be looked up and What is the process by which you can validate names as being legitimate as coming from a certain recursive resolver or not? That's equally as important. And so the namespace is where people are going to go for control. So if you want to prevent some website from being on the air, there's really two primary ways you can do that. The first is you can go after the hosting provider, whoever it is that hosts the content, right? If it's a hosting company, you try to go after them. But if their hosting company is out of The reach of whatever your legal regimen is or not even your legal regimen if it's outside the reach of your policy if you're an enterprise and you're trying to prevent gambling sites as an example you can't actually go out and prevent the hosting provider from providing a gambling site but what you can do then is go to the next level and you can say all right i'm not going to allow hosts that are within my control to look up particular names meaning the recursive side they're going to you're going to try to stop the recursive side from getting there I'm sorry, there's a third place you can go and I didn't speak about that. And that is also in the DNS where you can say, all right, I wanna prevent that name from even existing. I wanna prevent the authoritative operator from being allowed to register this name. And there are legal avenues you can go down for that. But those, the first two are very difficult if they're outside your jurisdiction, meaning if it's outside your company or outside your country. Recursive DNS is important because it is usually the place where policy can be applied locally. Meaning that if you're a company, and you control the DNS recursive resolver for your company, and many companies operate their own recursive resolvers inside, you can build a list that says you can or can't go to these certain websites. Now, all that does in my map analogy, it means that you can't read the map through that particular map reader service. It doesn't prevent the site from existing, the site, the gambling site or whatever it is you're trying to get to is still out there on the internet. And if you knew the IP address to it, you could manually, you know, configure your computer to go and get that content but it's really challenging. So DNS is really important because it is sort of a linchpin for many of the ways that you can say freedom is expressed or freedom of information or freedom of of data transit is expressed right now on the internet. And it's becoming a hotter place to be from a policy and legislative perspective, as far as who wants to control what data and who can see it. The DNS is one of the easiest places you can go to kind of prevent that from happening or to throttle it or to do whatever it is you're trying to do with your control model. Just to give you an example, right? China is the one that people reference the most, and it's the most obvious model. If you try to look up certain host names in China, they won't let you. You know, if you're trying to use Chinese DNS recursive resolvers, they won't allow you to look up certain sites or they'll give you an IP address back. They'll let you look it up but they'll give you a different IP address back. They'll essentially intercept the query and hand back a site that wasn't where you intended to go. So how do you prevent those kind of things from happening and how do you apply a reasonable policy onto the DNS is really important from both a privacy and a freedom perspective, if you wanna look at it in that dimension. By the way, I'll also say there are totally legitimate reasons why you would want to prevent someone from going to certain sites, right? People choose to use Quad9 intentionally because they don't want to be connected to malicious sites, right? Sites that are trying to do them personally, trying to do them harm. And we only filter on malicious content. So it's malware and all those other things I talked about previously. So individuals are like, wow, great, Quad9 filters things and that's to my advantage. We don't filter content. So we don't have a gambling filter as an example or a porn filter in our systems and that's not even an option because people can apply that themselves. It's a much more difficult proposition for us to define any of those things, much less who they should be applied to. Whereas cybersecurity is relatively generally universally accepted as, you know, bad things trying to be applied to individuals, right? Fraud and, and all these other things. It's a much easier way to define places that people don't wanna go. We describe DNS as really being really, really an excellent tool for allowing people to choose what they don't want to go to. And it's a really terrible tool if you're trying to prevent people from going to sites they want to go to. So to get back to the China example, right? China blocks certain content by blocking the DNS, but then all you need to do then is go to an encrypted DNS service. And we'll talk about that maybe later in the call, but we offer an encrypted model where you can make your DNS queries and people sitting on the network can't see what sites you're requesting. So there are always gonna be ways around blocking content people want to get to, and that's not the business we're in. We're in the business of blocking content people don't want to get to, meaning the end user who's in control of their destiny doesn't wanna connect to it. Last thing, we actually do offer a service that has no filtering. So 99910, is an unfiltered. We called our non-secure service. It has no block list on it. It just does DNS with whatever you want. In fact, it strips off a lot of other security as well. So if you're trying to do, if you're trying to look up sites that you're, you really know what you're doing, right? If you're a malware testing person, if you want to use Quad9, you can use 99910 and various secondaries to do that lookup. But again, giving the user the choice to do those decisions is where the importance comes in. The DNS is how people access content, and it's becoming really critical for both the ability to access the content, but then also the ability to do that privately and not have somebody looking over your shoulder or monetizing your behaviors is equally important. I answered half your question. What was (laughs) that? You asked why
0: it was important,
1: and then what was the other part? Sorry. uh,
0: No, that's fine. I just real quick wanted to say I'd really like your comment about how people can use dns like companies can use dns to enforce policies because it's so much easier. I know that but it's something that I've never really actively thought about before and it's like, oh wow, that's yeah. a really good point.
1: So we have to play both sides of the coin here, right? Because we're we understand that as an as an example, if you're a company and you want to prevent people from going to you know, I don't know, gambling sites, right, while they're at work. That we think is a reasonable thing for you to do. We might not necessarily agree with it ourselves, but we think that there are reasons that if you're inside an organization, that there are policies that that organization has a right to apply. So we try not to create systems that allow people to circumvent that. We're trying not to work in opposition to network operators. We're trying to at least offer them some ways that we can cooperatively do things. At the same time, ultimately, it's the end user's decision as to what they're doing and how they're doing it. And if they want to oppose the policy of wherever they happen to be whether that's a national policy or a company policy or anything else that's a decision that has to be made between those two end users we try not to weaponize the end user against the network operator because that's a really bad place to be because we know who's going to lose that and it's going to be the
0: end user the uh second part of the question was why should listeners care about changing their default dns
1: your default dns is probably going to be your isp that's pretty much who everyone uses automatically, you know, you turn on your cable modem or your phone or your whatever it happens to be, it's going to use the resolver of your ISP in the North American market, as an example, if you look at some of the major wireless carriers, if you're looking at your phone, you're using their DNS resolver as a default, and there have been some notices coming out about, and there's been some flap about, as an example, Verizon and what Verizon is now saying that you can opt out of certain data collection policies. If you read the documents with an eye towards DNS, the documents are really specific about what they do and don't allow. And and basically they're saying that it's DNS, that they're looking at all your DNS queries. I can't say that for sure because I don't know Verizon's policy, but if I was to read it through the lens of a DNS operator, I'd be like, it's pretty clear that they're looking at DNS. And so as the end user, you would probably not feel comfortable with somebody knowing every single DNS request you made because basically they're looking at all the websites you're going to. Even though the websites are now encrypted, so you can't actually see what's going on on the page, by looking at certain sites, you can build a pretty close demographic model of what someone's doing, almost everything about them to a frightening level of detail, especially if you have timing. You know, What time of day are you looking at certain websites and how long are you spending on them? It's very, it's terrifying. And so you should change your default resolver because if you don't have an extremely explicit statement from your ISP or whoever it is that operates your DNS that they will not monetize the DNS data, they probably are. In other words, if it's not spelled out in excruciating detail, what they do and do not do with your DNS data, then they probably do it. There's lots of money in the DNS right now because everything else is disappearing. The ability to see what websites people are going to is becoming more and more difficult and in order to extract marketing dollars out of end users then one of the last places is the dns it's not even a question ultimately of like who encrypts it and who makes it invisible you have to trust your dns provider implicitly with all of that data and it's really really important quad 9 go to our website we have a privacy policy stated there we've got the swiss data protection laws it's very tightly controlled as far as what we can and cannot do with your data and what we will natively will not do with your data so that's why i'd say it's important to change your default away from someone that you don't understand in in very good detail
0: that actually ties in very nicely to our next question which is uh focusing on quad 9 specifically what would you say sets quad 9 apart from competition like for example cloudflare next dns and why should listeners consider quad 9 as they're looking into other options
1: Quad9 is again. It's we're a not-for-profit. There's the saying of if you don't know where the money is coming from, it's probably coming from you. So if you can't tell where someone is making money on information you're giving them, you're the product. Now, you know, I phrase that a little bit differently. If you can't tell where the money is coming from, we're a nonprofit. So we list our sponsors on our page, right? We show you where the money is coming from. That means that we operate on a lower budget, but at the same time, we don't have an alternate product. So. If you don't know where the funding is coming from, if you don't know why a company is offering something, they're probably making money on it in some way that you might not agree with. Maybe you would agree with it. Like there are some companies, as an example, who sell DNS services and they sell you reports and they'll tell you every website you've gone to and every risk that you've, you've tripped across. And that's great. If you're an enterprise as an example, maybe that's something you're gonna use. If you're an end user though, looking at the other free services out there You have to ask yourself, why are they free? What are they really doing? What's the goal? And if you can't answer that clearly, the goal is probably somehow you. (laughs) So that's why I would suggest that we're different. We're the only nonprofit. We're the only ones who are really putting ourselves in the condition where we can't use your private data in any way.
0: One of the questions I had written down, we can skip it if you want, because I think you actually answered it pretty well, but it was, uh, you mentioned if a product is free or better, you said, if you don't know where the funding is coming from, do you want to comment on what Quad9's business model is for those who are listening?
1: Okay. Uh, Well, business model is a a difficult term with a nonprofit. So we get- Or uh, like you said,
0: like where your funding comes from since you're not selling user data.
1: Sure. The primary funding comes right now from corporations who get a couple of things from Quad9 in return. As an example, IBM is one of our bigger sponsors. What IBM gets out of the deal is, of course, their name is associated with Quad9 as a sponsor. That's great. But they also provide us with a threat list. So I talked about, you know, we have this list that's updated all the time with about several million different threat domains. We get that from about 20 different providers. They're all over the place. Some of them are specialized in phishing. Some of them are specialized in domain squatting, all kinds of things. So, as an example, IBM provides us with a a fairly big list, but every time someone connects or tries to connect to a site that IBM has given us, or any one of our threat providers has given us for that matter, we give back to IBM in near real time a message. We don't tell them who the user was. We don't give them anything about the IP address. We say, hey, someone tried to go to this website. It's one of the ones you told us was risky, and here's what time they did it, and here's the rough geography, right? They were in New York or they were in Singapore or wherever. IBM uses that data to enrich the threat feed that they have. In fact, all of our threat providers have the opportunity to use that data as a way to enrich their threat feed. So they can say, well, we gave you this threat first this morning and we see it's ramping up quickly and it's ramping up mostly in Asia. That's incredibly valuable information. To be able to see more or less in real time where in the world and how quickly certain threats are emerging or descending or whether they're steady state, that's very, very expensive data to get. So we're not monetizing the end user, but we're, in, we're monetizing kind of the aggregate data. Can we tell these threat providers what's happening in the world with the threats that they've given us? And we can, and that's very useful to them. So that's kind of the feedback loop. That also improves the threat data that we get back. Right. Each one of these threat providers who gets this stream of data can then return it to us in a better way. And they can say, oh, well, this threat is no longer an issue. We don't see it. And we can understand the pattern of a particular malware campaign as an example. So it improves our feed. It improves their business. They we don't mind if they repackage that data and sell it to their enterprise customers. That's that's fine as far as we're concerned, how they make money on that enhanced data. It's good for everybody. But they recognize that that's valuable. And so we have many sponsors right now who give us funding because they recognize that keeping us going keeps that data improving. So that's one way. Additionally, we have organizations who just recognize the fact that we're doing great things for their end user base, right? They're like, we have 100,000 users on your platform that we've recommended use your platform. And we know that that's protected us from millions of different events across the year. Here's some money to keep going. So there's a charitable and then there's a self-interest as well. They understand that if we disappear, their users are suddenly going to be exposed to these threats. And from a price perspective, from there, looking at the books at a, at a very high level, it's a great idea to sponsor Quad9 because keeping us together and around is cheaper than any other method that they might have. We additionally get grants and sponsorships and things like that as well for deploying in certain places as an example. So there's a variety of different ways that money comes into Quad9. And then of course, We get end user donations. So we have a sponsorship page on the website and we get quite a few people giving us money because they recognize the good work that we're doing. A lot of those people are actually more interested in the privacy component than the threat management. It's harder to sell privacy than it is to sell threat management, right? Threat management, there's a clear risk to an organization or to a a group, whereas privacy is really only useful to the end user. So we find more end users giving us donations because of privacy than they do because of security, although they get benefits from both.
0: We got one more general question. And that is, could you explain the difference between DNS over HTTPS and DNS over TLS? I know this is like an emerging topic. I see it talked about a lot. And like, what are the differences and stuff like that?
1: This is another whole show, but let, let 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 me summarize. So DOT was slightly first, DNS over TLS. DOT is simply wrapping a DNS packet inside of TLS. Remember, DNS as a protocol was almost always UDP, so stateless. We'd send a query out, and then hopefully a query would come back. But DNS also supported TCP, meaning that you could set up a socket and then send a message out and always get a message back on the socket so that it was stateful. Mostly not used, though. So what they said is, all right, we've got DNS over TCP. Let's wrap it with TLS. Essentially, that's the short form. And we're going to put it on port 853. So DNS operates on port 53, DNS over TLS operates over port 853, which was not used by anything else. So it's a secure way of a client, a device connecting to a recursive resolver to send the query in such a fashion that you cannot intercept it. You can't see it. You can't modify it. DOH came along slightly afterwards, DNS over HTTPS, driven to a large degree by folks in the browser space. Because... The browser automatically understands HTTPS, like, all right, why not just put DNS inside of an HTTPS packet and use that as a transport layer? Very, very similar in, again, looking at the very high level, very, very similar to DOT. It's just an encrypted DNS transaction. DOT has some fundamental problems that I sort of hinted at earlier in the conversation. DOT, or sorry, DOH has fundamental problems uh, that I hinted at. DOH operates on port 443 so it is indistinguishable from regular https traffic so anybody looking at the wire or you know anybody trying to apply a policy on dns cannot even detect that you're using doh now that might sound like an advantage and for most people it is it actually is an advantage because you're kind of intermixing your dns traffic in with the https traffic of the regular site so great you're protected you know security through obscurity in some ways but one of our problems with it and this is a long drawn out conversation there's actually some good kind of if you want to do a google search on paul vixie's discussions about doh he's actually a really good source and is better than i am at describing some of the issues the problem with doh is that now you've you've actually interleaved your your metadata and your transport data you've combined them on the same socket so any organization that's trying to apply a policy whether that's a parent a company or in some cases a government who wants to say all right we don't allow connections to encrypted dns servers because we don't want you to do that now you've basically weaponized the user now the user who's connecting to a doh server it's impossible to tell whether they're connecting to a doh server there are some ways that you could sort of detect it secondarily but ultimately it's not possible to tell so What does a policy administrator do in that condition? Let's say you have a law that says you have to block people from going to certain websites. Previously, you could block them by saying, all right, port 53, we're going to disallow certain queries. We're going to block port 853 entirely, but we're going to allow port 53, and we're going to intercept or observe. It's a terrible balance to make, but you can say that, okay, that means that the network operator is not going to go atomic on you. Right? They're going to still let queries go through on 853, or they're still going to allow some things to happen. When you embed everything in port 443, you're saying, all right, the user, you can't tell what the user is doing. You have no hope of telling what the user is doing. What are you going to do as a network administrator? Now, if you're a network administrator in a place where there's a law that says you have to do a certain thing, what you're going to do is you're going to block all internet traffic because you no longer have DNS as a method to, to apply your policy. So you're going to say, all right, well, nothing gets out. We're just going to close off the internet entirely and everything has to go through a proxy. And there are some hints to this. Like if you look at the U.S. government suggestions on what to do with DOH, the official policy of the U.S. government was don't allow DOH out. But they don't say how. They just simply say don't allow DOH and DOT to emanate from your networks. Well, okay, how are you going to do that if it looks identical to HTTPS? DOH, is, as far as we're concerned, it's neutral, right? DOH and DOT give many of the same advantages. DOH actually allows a little bit more data to slip because it actually tells the DOH server about your your browser, right? All the stuff in the header part of your browser escapes. Whether you consider that important or not depends on your opinion of fingerprinting in web browsers. So we're neutral between the two, meaning we as Quad9 are neutral between the two, but we're scared of the fact that DOH, as it rises in popularity, that that's actually going to cause places that are the most at risk for what we'll call censorship, right? A government level censorship. It's going to cause those places to have to react more aggressively against the citizen population than DOT would. If you're using DOT, at least you can block it. You can just pick DOT out and say, all right, I don't allow that. With DOH, that becomes impossible. And so it leads down this quickly escalating path of everything is blocked. You have to go through... A proxy where we look at every single packet and every single website you connect to there is no internet anymore it's a proxied internet and we're very worried that that's where things are going to go and it's going to kind of divide the world into the free and open internet world and the not free and not open internet world and it may be very surprising ultimately who you see fall on which side of that line so there's a political reason we don't like doh as much by the way, Quad9 supports both. <laughs> we happily support any kind of encryption method. We're we're all about encrypted data. We just there, there are some problems that we have with DoH. Ultimately, in the long run, we would prefer if people use DOT because it does not weaponize the user against the network operator. Because you know, ultimately, the guys with the guns and the laws are going to win that battle, and we don't want to be the people responsible for causing that war to escalate. But that's kind of out of our control at this point and we just answer the queries that may not have been the answer exactly you're looking for
0: <laughs> no i, but I the think difference it was is, um, i think it was interesting though because uh I, I i never really considered that whole uh like you said how they'll just block everything on 443 and i i think that is a valid concern because we've definitely seen a lot of internet shutdowns just even just last yes. year in a lot of repressive right. countries so
1: yep and yeah. and we've seen the expansion of dns filtering tools and aggressive DNS filtering tools, which does again, it's kind of indicates that that escalation is occurring, that war is happening, right? That the end user versus the network provider is starting to occur. And does DOH or DOT accelerate that? Yeah, probably does. And you know, how fast do we want to have it go? Where do we see the end game going? I don't know, but it's clear to us because we can see what's happening with DNS that Interception and rewriting of packets is much more frequent now than it used to be. There are now new companies appearing whose only product is DNS rewrite and, and intercept tools, and those are applied at national boundaries uh, as well as um, at corporate boundaries or ISP boundaries. So as I said at the very beginning of this call, DNS is a really interesting place to be right now because it's kind of the last frontier of unencrypted data. And you know what happens when that disappears? Like, What's the next step in this escalation?
0: Yeah, that was very good insight. So you made some predictions for this year regarding DNS security trends. And yep. if it's okay with you, I'm going to read off all seven of them just so that our listeners know what they are. Number one is DNS security will be particularly essential in healthcare as telehealth continues to grow post-COVID and as privacy and security concerns increase. Number two, awareness of the criticality of DNS for business will continue to grow because of high-profile attacks. Number three, increased use of DNS security solutions as the first line of defense against data exfiltration. Number four, challenges from hybrid working will create a need for improved multi cloud management. Number five, zero trust strategies using whitelisting will help reduce IoT security risks. Number six, there will be regulation shifts for better data protection in the world beyond GDPR. And number seven, the cloud's reliance on DNS security will expand. There were two of those that I found particularly interesting, and I was just wondering if you would uh, dive into those a little bit more for our listeners. The first one was number two. Awareness of the criticality of DNS for business will continue to grow because of high-profile attacks. Particularly, I'm interested in how DNS can help mitigate or prevent attacks.
1: Sure. So um, I'll go backwards. How can DNS prevent or mitigate attacks is there are a huge number of different varieties of attacks against the DNS. I think it was new star that came out with a report last year that said something like more than 70% of all companies in a year had seen some sort of DNS attack against them. That's pretty significant. And I'm thinking that's large companies. I don't think that's, you know, every domain. I think it's just corporates, but that's pretty significant. So one of the things that we see not taking off the way I think people should be adopting is DNSSEC. So I'll just pick one and DNSSEC is going to be where I'm going to go with this. So as an example, we see attacks with some frequency where uh, a distributed denial of service attack, you know, 100,000 bots will fire up and they'll start asking for 1234.example.com. And the next bot will ask for 5678.example.com. And the next bot will ask for ABCD.example.com. So basically asking for random strings on a certain domain name. And that what they're attempting to do is overload the authoritative name servers of that company by sending uncached queries, meaning queries that, that the recursive resolvers haven't asked for recently. Therefore, they don't remember them. Therefore, they have to go through this whole iterative process and ask the authoritative name servers for all this garbage. The goal is to crash the authoritative name server, making the website unavailable or making the namespace unavailable. Happens frequently. So... One of the features of DNSSEC that could be used, DNSSEC is a way of a domain owner to essentially what's called sign and validate their domain against unauthorized rewrites. It's not encryption. So people get DNSSEC confused. It actually isn't encryption. It is a way to make sure that a recursive resolver, when it gets an answer from an authoritative resolver, says, oh, this is in fact the right answer the message was not intercepted in the, well, I shouldn't say that the message was not meddled with between the question and the answer component. So I'm confident that the answer that I've received is in fact the same answer that the authoritative server wants to give me. So it's validation. There are some other benefits to DNSSEC though that could be used. So as an example, in these cases where there are iterative questions being asked, DNSSEC has an interesting function where it can actually give you negative answers. It can say between these two names, There is nothing else. So if you look at mail.example.com and www.example.com, when the recursive resolver asks for one of those two, it actually gets back a response that says there's nothing between these two. There are no other names between M and W, to make it very simplistic. So the recursive resolver then says, oh, well, there's no answers between M and W. So if I get a request for ssss.example.com, I don't even have to talk to the authoritative server. I know that there's nothing between M and W. So I'm going to immediately answer the bot and say, nope, never heard of it. So DNSSEC has a number of different ways to prevent these type of overload attacks from overloading the authoritative server. But the person who runs the domain, right, the person who runs example.com, has to sign their zone with DNSSEC. And DNSSEC is still a little bit scary for some people. It's a tricky protocol. But if you do that, you get a bunch of these side benefits that not only do you ensure that the answers that recursive resolvers are seeing are correct, but you also get some protection against certain types of attacks. So to roll it up to say that DNSSEC is something that domain operators, companies, or anybody that owns a domain name, sign your zone with DNSSEC. Usually it's in a lot of different providers. It's just a checkbox, say, you know, checkbox in my, whoever whoever runs my DNS, yeah, sign the zone and it just works. So that gives you some benefits.
0: That's pretty awesome. I have the DNSSEC box checked on my own website and I never really knew what it did, but um, that's pretty cool. That's genius. it's, It's quite useful. And the problem is DNSSEC, as I said, it's a little bit scary if you run your own name server, it's a little
1: bit challenging to get DNSSEC set up. And if you do it wrong, You know, all kinds of things blow up, but it's getting much easier. The people who have designed the DNS software now are making it really cut and paste kind of work.
0: It's no longer as scary as it was, you know, five years ago. And there's really it's quite easy. And I think DDoS is a really good example. As we're recording this just this past week, Microsoft reported, uh, I don't know if it was record breaking, but one of those insanely powerful DDoS attacks. So I was actually a little bit wrong in my prediction.
1: I think this year wasn't the year of DNS attacks. This year was the year of stability and security are incredibly tightly intertwined, right? Like if you don't have a secure network, it doesn't matter if it's secure, it's not still not operating. So this year is the year of DNS stability issues causing awareness of the DNS, where we had, uh, I believe it was Akamai in the beginning part, like or mid- middle part of the year, having a massive outage due to DNS problems. And then we had the Facebook outage, which was not a DNS problem. It was a BGP problem, but it manifested itself by their DNS servers becoming unavailable, which made it look like a DNS problem. So I would say 2021, in the last year, the number of DNS attacks has still been increasing, but it's been slowly and silently increasing, whereas the stability issues were the ones that captured the news, DNS stability. is, And the things you can do to prevent DNS security issues are very often almost identical to the things you can do to prevent DNS security issues. So they're very tightly intertwined and companies need to, do, like DNSSEC is an example, and increasing your TTLs so that caches remember you longer. And there's a whole bunch of things you can do which benefit both sides of that coin. So I'm slightly wrong. I'm going to say that last year was more of a stability year than a security year, but that was only the things that caught the news. Security is still ramping up, but there has been no Pearl Harbor, as the saying goes, for DNS security in the last year or so, but, you know, knock on wood, something will happen at, at some point here in the future. So partially wrong, partially right.
0: Okay. And then the other one that I was interested in was prediction number six. There will be regulation shifts for better data protection in the world beyond GDPR. As an American privacy enthusiast, I definitely dream of things like that. And we're already starting to see some of them be pushed yes. through right now. But uh, what are are you expecting to see anything beyond what we're already seeing or um, just kind of what do you expect Um, to see on that?
1: So I applaud the GDPR in Europe, even though it's a really burdensome set of laws in some dimensions, but it's the foundation that now I think that people can start to trust. And it's now becoming a question of how do you implement within the guidelines? Swiss data protection law is essentially a mirror of the GDPR plus plus plus, as they say, right? In North America, it's still a patchwork right? There are a number of states that are considering or have implemented basic laws about consumer privacy. Honestly, I'm terrified of the way the U.S. is doing it on a state level, and I understand that there's some restrictions that, you know, that's just the way that laws work in the United States, but doing it on a state-by-state basis is going to be bonkers to try to adhere to the law, and there at least needs to be a national standard that people can look to about it. Weirdly, The biggest dns consumer on the planet has actually implemented reasonably strict laws and that's china china implemented a consumer protection and data model in 2021 i think that looks good but of course there are vast exemptions for the government so but from a corporate you know how corporations interact with private data it looks interesting. I will also admit I haven't read it in any detail. I did do a quick overview of it, but they've got a billion people there, a billion plus, quite a few more than a billion. Now, that's a pretty big chunk now that are provided with some basic privacy on a level that applies to corporate interactions with personal data. Your mileage may vary in how private that actually is in other aspects, but it's interesting, right, that China beat some of these other larger countries in implementing a national level law for how private data is treated. There are other nations that are considering different privacy laws. I I want to say Brazil is looking at a law. So there is traction now. The GDPR has, I guess, told people that this is possible to do, and the companies won't disappear and go under because of, you know, these, these privacy regulations. So we're making progress, but not as quickly as I'd like. I would say before the laws catch up with the technology, you should look to, you know, how your interactions with different companies works and what they promise or not promise to do with your data. So that's, again, that's why quad nine is important because you can rely on what we do and don't do with personal data. I mean, we don't do anything with it. We throw it away. So if you can't answer those questions with the companies you're working with and you don't have a set of laws that, that guarantee certain privacies, then I don't know, you have to to consider where your data is going.
0: That kind of sums up all the questions I had. Was there, Anything that we didn't discuss that you, you want to add on? or?
1: No, I think we've kind of covered it. I'm really pleased with our growth in the last year. I would encourage people to look at Quad9 and, and look at our privacy policies. Even if you don't end up using Quad9, look at the privacy policies and compare them against the privacy policies of who you are using. One of our kind of secondary goals is to, even if you don't use Quad9, we're trying to force other companies into upping their game. So our privacy policy, now you'll start to see echoes of that in some other providers' uh, documents. There was a recent IETF draft, or I'm sorry, it's a BCP, I think. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't I should remember this, but I don't. Basically about recursive resolver privacy, like what's the standard that people would expect for recursive resolver privacy. And we're very pleased to see a lot of our privacy policy essentially cut and pasted into their example sets in the back. So we're really trying to drive the privacy model into other places. And we would be happy if everybody had the <laughs> the same privacy model as we did, and we could stop talking about how we're different. I would love to not have to say that we're the only organization that by law can't store your IP address data and it has a worldwide footprint, right? There are other providers that are in Europe that can do certain parts, but they're not worldwide. They're certain. But anyway, I would love to say that we no longer have that as a, a unique point. So. Even if you don't use this, take a look at the privacy policy. Compare it against what you're using.
0: Finally, is there anything you you want to plug besides obviously the Quad (laughs) Nine website? But you know, are there any uh, newsletters, websites, upcoming projects, or anything like that you Uh, want to tell people to go check out? Or
1: well, one of the things we didn't talk about because again, it could take its own podcast is that we're actually, if you take a look at our website and take a look at the blog and news section, we're actually fighting an injunction right now in Germany from Sony Music, and this is a case that everyone should be paying attention to i think and that we need some help we need help from your listeners really we need legal money (laughs) we have a budget that funds our operations but we did not count on a big legal battle and to, to sum it up really quickly sony is saying that in germany that a website that we simply resolve we just answer a question about the website we're giving the ip address back by doing that we are essentially indirectly responsible for, by resolving the website that points to, they have links to another website which contains content that is copyright infringing or that Sony asserts is copyright infringing. This is really dangerous because essentially Sony has asserted that we have to basically take whatever they tell us about and filter it in Germany. And if what we do in Germany has a tendency to become what all of Europe does and what all of Europe does has a tendency to become what a lot of the world does. We don't think that it should be possible for companies to tell other companies to censor part of the internet based on not particularly well-founded or well-educated assertions. And so we're fighting that in German courts. And we've gone through one objection to the injunction. We're now into our second phase, and that's going to take quite some time and some money. But we think that it actually has significant privacy and other stipulations that people should know about And you should become familiar with the case, at least, or at least read the case. We actually post all the documents on our website. Take a look at it. It's actually quite scary. And we're confident that we're going to come out and win, but we need help to do it. So your listeners, I would appeal to you, throw a few euros, francs, dollars our way and help us pay for some lawyers. It does have a big impact on everything, web browsers, DNS resolvers, firewalls, everything downstream, and it's going to be a very important case.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because that was something I thought about asking you about was the whole censorship thing. And then when I went to go, like, look it up and educate myself, I saw that you guys were in the middle of fighting it. And so I was like, oh, so and we're like as surveillance report, we're firm believers that like a company has to obey the law. Like you can't just tell the law to screw off and do whatever. So I certainly don't blame you guys for obeying the law. But
1: we have to. Right. But
0: at the same time, we're going to we have to fight. Right. Well, there's
1: another option which we don't want to pursue, which is that we could we could withdraw from Germany, right? We could just turn our servers off and, and answer all these questions for people in Germany from outside of Germany, and we don't want to do that. And that's really the last option that we have that we hopefully will not have to pursue because I really, really don't want to do that. We have a lot of users in Germany. And really the biggest risk there is that that's the easy way out for us, right? We could just say, oh, we don't have enough money to fight this, we'll just leave Germany. But it's basically that means Sony wins. And that means that they'll be able to take that essentially no contest ruling and apply that to other companies, and that is terrifying. Like, we're the thin edge of the wedge here, right? They picked on the nonprofit that they know doesn't have a full-time legal staff that they think they can just push over, and we're not. So it's really an important case because if we lose it, there's a lot of other people who are next on the chopping block, and it's a long list of different organizations. If if by resolving a domain name, we can be claimed to be partially liable for copyright infringement, okay, how about your web browser? How about your firewall that lets this website through? How about your antivirus program that's not blocking it? It goes on. You can get pretty absurd in the argument as far as where that leads and we don't think that that's a good outcome for the internet and for Germans or Europeans in general. So we're fighting it. So help us, right? (laughs) Give us a hand. We have a great case, but no matter how great the case, it still costs money and time to push that through the courts. And that's what we're looking for assistance on.
0: Okay, I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you again so much for making time in your schedule to come and talk to us. Mm-hmm. And we will leave links to Quad9 and the news that he was just talking about with the the legal stuff. We'll leave all of that in the show notes. So, yeah, if you guys are still using your default DNS resolver, definitely change that and <laughs> definitely give Quad9 some consideration and look into them.
1: Thanks from everybody at the team here, and thanks for the time to, to talk about our project.